so many systems derive a lot of their greatness and their genius from the things that happen between and among people, not just the people that started it, not just the people that are in positional power, if there even is positional power. And so I really like the thesis of the idea that coherence is the surest sign that things are going well, that there's a presence of identity and momentum and direction and togetherness in the system. I think that the alternative to that is chaos. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. We often view leadership as such an individual role, but does it have to be? Today's guest, Aaron Dignan, shares a radically different approach to leadership as something that needs to be more coherent and inclusive with everyone involved. Through the power of consent and purpose, organizations can drive real systemic change. Aaron Dignan is the founder of The Ready, a global organizational transformation and coaching practice where he helps both large and small companies adopt new forms of self-organization and dynamic teaming. Over the last 10 years, Aaron has studied organizations and teams with a new way of working that prioritizes adaptivity and autonomy over efficiency and control. Aaron is the co-host of the Brave New Work podcast, an active angel investor and helps build partnerships between the startups and the end-ups he advises. He's also a co-founder of Responsive.org and has sat on advisory boards for GE, American Express, PepsiCo and Copper Hewitt. He's the author of Game Frame and Brave New Work. In this conversation, we're not afraid to go deep as we look into a boundaryless future. Tune in as we explore how the Ready founds new ideas within the business, the role of almost micro-socialist experiments in an organization, and how to balance people's personal development and uniqueness alongside the development of the organization. Enjoy this episode with Aaron Dignan, and if you like it, please go to the Apple Podcast app and rate the show. It really helps us get these amazing ideas out in the world. Hello, everyone. Today, we are back uh, with Panthers Conversations podcast and with a slightly unusual uh, co-host. Uh, today with me, there is not uh, Stina, our usual co-host, but there is Emanuele Quintarelli from Bandless, our micro-enterprise uh, lead for the EEO uh, initiative. So, ciao, Emanuele. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Happy to be here. And uh, we have a wonderful guest uh, today, Aaron Dignan. I hope I pronounced it well, Aaron, right? You got it. You, you, you nailed it. Yeah, happy to be here. <laughs> Aaron is the founder of, uh, the co-founder of The Ready and uh, uh, also, you know, uh, author of uh, uh, the wonderful book, uh, Brave New Work, and many, many more things that maybe uh, we're going to touch upon uh, during the conversation. So this uh, conversation starts from uh, a Twitter exchange uh, we had. We know each other uh, uh, since a few years, actually. And a few weeks ago, I was talking about uh, uh, my experience with uh, leadership and coherence in organizations. And it seems like a very hot topic today uh, as uh, uh, we are living through the unbundling of the firm. You know, every, everybody's talking about this. 
and um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, uh, I, I think it was nice to see that you agreed the first on this idea of uh, coherence being, uh, to some extent, the expression of leadership. And then uh, you uh, you wanted to put some, uh, you know, clarify some points around, for example, the idea that uh, you would rather replace the idea of leadership with. Uh, Uh, the idea of uh, governance and stewardship, and uh, and you also uh, hinted towards uh, uh, leadership being more like a distributed process than uh, than uh, concentrated in one person. No? And I and I was slightly disagreeing. So let's um, <laughs> let's maybe start from from there, and and maybe you want to articulate a little bit better uh, why you weren't so comfortable with my first uh, with my first tweet. Well, I think right out of the gate, the word leadership to most people in most industries and in most cultures is kind of connected to this idea of a single person or a person who holds power uh, and doesn't relinquish it, or even a positional power that doesn't relinquish it and that exists in the structure hierarchically on a semi-permanent basis. So the idea is that, you know, the corporation has a CEO, the corporation will always have a CEO, and the CEO will always have the ultimate power. And that is the part that I bristle at a little bit, simply because so many of the systems that you and I study derive a lot of their greatness and their genius from the things that happen between and among people, not just the people that started it, not just the people that are in positional power, if there even is positional power in a lot of those organizations. And so I really like the thesis of the idea that coherence is the surest sign that things are going well, that there's a presence of identity and momentum and direction and, you know, togetherness in the system. I think that, you know, the alternative to that is chaos, right? The alternative to good coherence is we don't know what we're doing or why we're doing it. We're moving in multiple different directions. And coherence is the murmuration or the flock of birds is moving as one. And so I really, that resonated with me a lot, but as it, as in the case with a flock of birds that you might see a bird at the front, but that bird doesn't have positional authority. They happen to be there. They happen to be in the front. They will move and, and rotate and adjust with others when the time comes. And so that was the part I was just trying to, I don't know, nudge a little bit for the, for the lazy reader. Right. Uh, well, that's a very interesting way to start, you know, because uh, a few things that I was uh, noting down in the background. You know, first of all, maybe um, you know, of course, when you when you talk about uh, birds you know, and 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 uh, the uh, these murmurations, uh, I tend to think that uh, this works because we had millions of years of evolution in the background. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of feels natural. Uh, while my experience of uh, an organization, especially, and that's another point that maybe we want to touch upon, the difference between the established organizations versus emergent organizations uh, that uh, lots of times uh, uh, today, it's also, uh, um, you know, a discussion between, uh, a distinction between uh, uh, 20th century organization and 21st century organizations. Um, so, so these are maybe two points that... Uh, Uh, need to be taken into account when when we uh, discuss uh, about uh, an emergent process of leadership. Because my my experience, I don't know you, but you know, again, I've been working with two or three emergent organizations, and my experience is that leadership is hard. So you you basically uh, you basically need to really express uh, intentionally this uh, leadership. Uh, 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 
inside the organization. Yeah, I I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think I, I have two thoughts about that. One is uh, the earlier the days are for the organization, the more important I think that is because you haven't yet created the space. You haven't yet defined whatever boundaries there might be in this boundaryless future. Um, you haven't created the the structure, the, the infrastructure that allows for self-governance or self-organization or even, you know, emergence within the organization to unfold. So I kind of, I always liken it to creating a community garden, right? Which is owned by the community and operated by the community. Well, when it's been there for 20 years, the, the, the muscles are strong. The, the bones are strong. There's a sense that the community knows how to, t- to caretake for this shared thing. But the day that someone has the idea to start it, they do have to, to lead. Um, they do have to, to put the stakes in the ground and dig up the dirt and, and establish those first boundary rules and, and conditions about what it means to participate and who can participate and how they can participate. So I don't, I don't disagree with you at all that there's, that there's a real role and a need for that. And, and early days in a human organization might be the first 10 or 20 years, uh, potentially, right? It doesn't, I'm not talking about months one and two here. Um, but by the same token, I think that the the kinds of things that we need leadership on or that we need uh, ideas, directionality, enthusiasm, you know, coherence, gathering around uh, are varied and, and not every single one needs to be done by the same people. And so, for example, just because I'm the founder of the Ready does not mean that I should be the one necessarily to lead the organization to a place of more diversity, equity and inclusion. I can play a role. I can be an instigator. I can be a spark. I can support, but maybe I don't have the expertise. Maybe I don't know what I need to know in order to to move us in that direction. And maybe someone else who has the right lived experience needs to actually help us to to construct that reality. So, and the same is true for marketing and brand and sales and you know what where we should go next and expansion and European business. I mean, I don't I don't understand the business culture in the Netherlands as well as my partner, Urian. Um, so I can't lead in that context. And so for me, there it's not leadership. There are leaderships happening throughout the system. And the older it gets and the more established that original source is and distributed that is, the more that can be a, a, a moving, dancing thing, I believe. Aaron, so I have a follow-up question. I agree with you, and I agree that the, uh, leadership is becoming... Uh distributed it's uh, happening really between the people uh, not even in the people or in one individual specific individual at the top of the organization in that case uh, how does coherence look like how can you maintain coherence basically without a structure what else can we use for it yeah i mean i i've always thought of uh, of coherence as being a two-part story one is is about storytelling. Uh, what what is the what is the tribal knowledge, the storytelling, the origination, the the myths uh, and beliefs of the organization? And I think in some ways that's the if there is a role for for a, a founder leader that lasts, it's often that it's often to be you know storyteller and and telling stories about what the future might look like that gather people around the fire. Uh, so I think that continues and, and we get more storytellers and more chapters, but, uh, but that's one piece of the coherence is that we all have in our minds 
this narrative about what we're doing, why we're doing it, where we're going, how it's how it's going. And then the second piece of it, I believe, is actually the feedback loop with reality. <laughs> so, so coherence can come from feedback from what you're doing and what you're trying and what's working and what isn't. And often what I see is I see firms cohere around what works. So they, they begin to see like, hey, and, and what works could be defined by money. It could be defined by market you know, sentiment. It could be defined by their own experience, right? We all, when we all work this way, it feels better. Then we can cohere around that. Um, so, I, yeah, I feel like it's like feedback and storytelling are probably the two things that drive the most instead of maybe mandate and instruction. Uh, would you add uh, purpose on the list? Yeah, I think purpose is is sort of intimately connected with storytelling, right? It is, uh, it's connecting to deeper meaning making and to intent and to impact. And usually we we share that in the form of a story. We share that in the form of a, here's what's going on in the world. And here's the the breakdown or the problem that is the plot point that starts the journey. And here's the thing, we, you know, here's how we want the world to be different when we're done. So I, I think, yeah, we sort of uh, interpret purpose through the hero's journey many times. So, so that's very interesting. I mean, I don't want to uh, look like the bad guy here, but... Oh, uh, no, please feel free. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, but I had this very interesting conversation once uh, and around this idea that uh, it's great if we can create an organization when every, everybody can be unique. The question is also, you can be unique outside the organization as well. So the point is, what it takes from you to be part of an organization, especially an organization that is on the market. Uh, what I mean with that, uh, a few years ago, I had the chance to listen to a um, uh, lecture magistralis from uh, Zadie Smith. You know? She was giving this excellent uh, speech in Rome uh, at the festival for the literature and she was talking about creativity and uh, she was talking about this idea that you need to compromise uh, with the market at some point you know because you, there is nothing creative if there is no market uh, there no so uh, or at least you cannot uh, uh, you know you cannot be on the market faking the fact that you are you are not there no you are there you are on the market you need to be uh, compromising you know so i think what we are doing these uh, uh, how we are doing this in boundless for example now uh, from the uh, organizational architecture perspective that i think it's a space that we would like to to discuss in this conversation so we are to some extent making the case uh, for uh, the organization to grow through micro enterprises. Now, in this, we are mutuating from Rendan and he, uh, and we have found a whole uh, a lot of uh, meaning in the, this entrepreneurial structure that uh, Hire is promoting, and we are helping them to open source and to make available to everybody, and in the process, embedding in our way of organizing. And I think the, the interesting thing is when you make it clear that uh, you can get uh, autonomy Uh, but this has a cost. You need to find the market fit, basically. I think uh, this is really a different way, and it's a powerful way to overcome this, uh, I would say, continuous friction in organization between those that do and those that uh, um, you know expect, uh, I would say, to have a role. That's pretty much uh, the point. You know, the question is, uh, you need to, uh, to venture out. You need to find a fit with the market. And in this process, you need to compromise. So why don't you create a venture out around you, around your team, and become part of something that maybe has a shared purpose, but then it's up to you to find your, your 
product, your fit to the market. That's why I said also coherence needs to deal with product design, product uh, development. What do you think about that? I think we are in agreement on that, actually. You know, even within the ready, we're we're pretty big believers in both of those ideas. And I think the the thing that we also value a lot is the internal marketplace. So the finding fit with the external market entrepreneurially is important, but we also have a lot of internal marketplace activity that goes on because we work in teams and because those teams are not fixed, people get to decide who they work with. And when people get to decide who they work with, you get a lot of movement and a lot of shuffling and a lot of, you know, sampling. And, uh, and over time, what happens is that, you know, some people's reputation grows and their demand grows and some people's reputation shrinks and their demand shrinks. Um, and, and there are ways to, you know, work with that and provide help and feedback and advice and overcome some of that. But at the end of the day, that's a good market force helping folks understand if, the ready is right for them if they're right for the ready if the market that they've chosen to work in is a good fit for their skills and interests etc so there's all this internal marketplace going on and then there's also an external marketplace that we mostly express right now through regions but that i also can see some lines of business evolving around so we have a european cohort that you know works mostly independently on on projects that are there in their own currency and with very little assistance from from individuals on the state side they're able to leverage the brand and the materials and and all of that infrastructure but uh but they they kind of make it work uh on their own and then in the US you know a different a different unit uh with with its own you know kind of market and pricing and focus um, so yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that is necessary, and in some ways, it it eliminates the need for a bunch of other policy and direction that you have to have if you don't allow market forces, internal or external, to to nudge and shape and force that compromise. Aaron, I need I need to to, to react to this and to uh, to ask this. Um, I totally understand. Totally get. Uh, let's say the intention of letting people bloom uh, um, invent uh, at a, have a pulse on the market and understand where the market is going trying to find a fit and trying to build something but I also see let's say the risk of having two levels of citizens into into the organization so having let's say the entrepreneur and uh, everybody everybody else uh, and maybe by doing that, we are also impacting psychological safety, impacting the conditions for everybody else uh, to contribute, uh, not just by creating a product uh, or by creating a new micro-enterprise, but also bringing the ingenuity, the energy, the passion, the competencies that they have. How to balance this? How to keep the rest of the team uh, within the organization with the same level of engagement and passion and creativity that we need for me at least uh, to scale the organization not as a single individual but uh, as a really a community as you said at the beginning i think it's a great question and i would say we're still learning about this i don't i don't mark this as an area where we have all the answers uh, I, don't, I don't know that I mark any area as an area where we have all the answers but um, my my experience of this is that we don't we don't explicitly name people entrepreneurs, for starters, uh, but we do have personality types and skills that emerge in the system. And some people 
take more risk and some people go further afield and some people want to, you know, sell more and do more and grow more. Um, and others, you know, prefer to execute and prefer to advise and prefer to create content and, you know, so many other things. But because we view market making as a team sport um, that can't, you know, that can't really be done without all those different types, uh, at least not at scale, um, it doesn't, at least for now, surface as a massive tension in the organization. There are definitely different levels of participation and different levels of intensity. Uh, and what tends to happen is that the people that like to make markets and like to try new stuff kind of hang out together more and cook up new stuff more. <laughs> and the people that like to do training, do training. And the people that like to make content, make content together. And, and by the way, a lot of those maps are not separate, right? That some people are in more than one kind of informal cohort within the ready. And I think if you asked everybody to draw it, it would be quite a soupy diagram. Um, but yeah, we just, I think we're just sort of listening to our own motivation and our own energies and making sure that everybody's free to pursue their energy, at, you know, to, to, to the greatest extent they can. And one of the ways we do that is that um, every four months, so we run on a trimester or a, or a tricycle schedule. So every four months we break for a week and we go dark and we focus on our own operating system and our own way of working and our own, you know, connections and emotions um, and one of the things we do during that that week is we uh, cook up ideas for new initiatives and then we fund those initiatives together. And so that's become a really neat vehicle for entrepreneurship and 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 not just entrepreneurship that's about market making, like, hey, we're going to do an online course and we're going to sell it to these people, but also entrepreneurship around we don't have a training program, we should make one. And we're going to invent one from the ground up. And so because those things get funded and because the people that propose those initiatives or those projects get complete control over those funds, we're making, you know, eight to 15 entrepreneurs every four months. So they, you know, they essentially walk away with, I don't know, five, 15, $30,000 to do something and the total authority to do it. Uh, with the support of the team and the consent of the team. So it's actually, I think it's quite quite an interesting approach and it allows us to have a diversity of different creations going on, not just creations that are about revenue, but also creations that are just about expressing what, you know, again, what the purpose and what the, you know, culture and company can be. And I heard you say a magic word, at least for me, consent. And I know that you have been playing with sociocracy for, for a bit, um, what are, what are the values, the beliefs, the assumptions, also hidden assumptions that you are getting from sociocracy and how are they playing out into your way of working, into your culture as a firm? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've played with a lot of sociocracy, holacracy, uh, you know, different, different forms of decision making from, from uh, history. And I think what we've learned is that the consent principle that's at the heart of most of that is is super important because it it becomes a framework on which to build that where the foundation is strong so even if we decide to install a leader or we inside decide to install a process or or a constraint of some kind that feels more traditional if it's if, if it's instantiated through consent and it's controlled through the power of consent and can be edited through the power of consent then it has a different texture. It has a different patina to it than it than it would if it was um, if it was just 
from me. <laughs> and so I think that that has been the big learning is that if there's a legitimacy to things that we have all granted our kind of sacred support to. And we have not reached a scale yet at the ready where we do a lot of elected or representational consent. And so I think that's the next chapter for us is to see how does that change the nature of how it feels? How does that change the the legitimacy or the meaning of it? But obviously, you know, you're not going to do uh, a full process around consent with 500 people every time you make a decision about what kind of napkins should be in the food hall. So I think we, we're going to have to uh, test and learn our way into that. But um, we're working on some uh, some behind the scenes projects that might help us with that scale question as well. So I'm excited about that. Well, that sounds uh, really interesting, you know, because um, when I think about uh, last, last, last week, you know, I was uh, listening to your latest, uh, I think the latest podcast episode, maybe not the latest when this show will be aired, but uh, as of now, 27th of January, uh, you uh, been talking about capitalism no, on the, on the podcast. I think from the early steps of our conversations, we have been talking about, uh, you know, market feet and uh, uh, gaining your independence, your autonomy through uh, product design, product innovation, and market making, uh, which is, uh, well, it's capitalism 100%. You know, it's essentially uh, the essence of capitalism. And uh, at the same time, I think Emanuele and you uh, brought up uh, for example, this idea of the shared investments, and also uh, the idea that, uh, to some extent, I think is also echoed in, in, for example, other artifacts that we have seen in, I don't know, I can mention, for example, Aspira, where, where, where they've been testing out this idea of the livelihood pods. Uh, so when people actually intentionally um, uh, decide to put their skin in, in the game, but together. No? So, so essentially a livelihood pod works like, you know, uh, people share their income, you know, irrespectively of who generates it. Um, so these are small socialism, uh, I would say small universe of socialism inside of the organization, uh, which is, I think, an interesting uh, experiment to do. No? So, uh, it, it, so to some extent, it explains that you want to take all uh, the, uh, um, the structural lock-ins and maybe try to inject in the organization some uh, systemic interdependence between parties, between people, so that they are on their own, but there is also, to some extent, uh, interdependence between them. So, for example, in boundaries, uh, we are now playing with uh, having a profit redistribution that is partially uh, uh, on your own, on your own enterprise, but partially also depending on the whole system performance. And also, so this is a way to say, you know, we are all in this also together, not just not, you're not just on your own. Because otherwise, the question is, what, what, what is the organization then? If everybody's on their own creating products. And, right, right, right. You know, whether we are sharing the brand, whether we're sharing them. So I think this is an interesting polarity to, to explore in, in, in the next uh, few minutes uh, about, you know, this double dynamic, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, you need to find a way to develop yourself. But at the same time, we want to be the, uh, 
you know, developmental as an organization. We want to make these spaces uh, where uh, if you are up to the challenge, you can try to uh, emancipate. But at the end of the day, you all fall back into this idea that if you want to make an impact on the organization, if you want to make an impact on you, you need to emancipate yourself. You need to uh, create, you need to uh, market make. And so so I think we, we are not finding an escape from that. You know? And uh, so, so my point is... Uh, 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 and you know, and it's also interesting when you when you talk about the next step uh, in the organization as it grows and moves into delegation. So, so I see a lot of patterns that we are living through society, you know, in democracy and so on. Uh, so the question is really: uh, Is there a, a, I would say, a model of organizing that uh, uh, maybe can uh, help us to to scale? Uh, this kind of approach and patterns from inside one organization into more uh, systemic and scalable interaction. So can we, for example, imagine that uh, the way we manage certain organizations can be transformed into a shared uh, protocol, let's say, that enables more uh, cross-organizational interactions across uh, principles that I would say are more uh, I, I don't know to say, but more general for society, not just for our organization. I love that a lot. Yeah, I think, first of all, I think we're way too, at least here in, in the US, we're way too monotheistic about system design. And so it's like people, are, some people are like, I'm a capitalist. And some people are like, I'm a socialist. And we have to fight about it. And I always think of it more like wine and cheese. Like we, you know, the, the best meals are about combinations of flavors that you haven't tried before that really open up a whole new palette. And so for me, I think about it as, well, yeah, sure. Evolutionary market forces are incredible because what they do is they drive learning and improvement over time. That's literally what has created all of us and the world we live in. And, you know, the, the buildings will get taller and the healthcare will get better. And, and you know, everything, everything improves on the back of this free market competition. So I don't want to lose that. I would never want to I would never want to lose that. That's the engine of learning that we need. However, all by itself, it has a lot of extreme edge cases that I don't really love. And so I actually see the role of the collective forces, collective consent and governance as limiting the edges. Let's raise the floor so that the worst thing that happens to someone in our system is not the worst thing that can happen. Let's lower the ceiling a little bit so that the best possible thing that could happen can't happen. Uh, and let's use the benefits of both of those limitations and constraints to create an even more satisfactory middle and then create some coherence around that middle. And so that's I sort of see them in balance rather than in 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 argument or in conflict with each other. But I know that that's not the uh, that's not the normal opinion. And as for the shared org thing, I mean, I absolutely am excited about that. I think that some of the things that are happening technologically uh, that would allow that to happen in terms of uh, connections and partnership and collaboration and, and agreement making uh, are going to enable that. But I actually think the prerequisite is just that there are more organizations like ours and like the ones that we uh, enjoy following and learning from. Um, there's just not enough. There aren't enough people yet at the party to, to, to really see the kind of game B level cohorting that I think is possible. 
Why is this not happening more? Is it due <laughs> to leadership or some kind of leadership just to close the loop? I think there are a variety of reasons why it's not happening more. I think it is happening more and more, right? So I think that, you know, what we're allowed to say and talk about and do and consider and try now versus 50 years ago is is greatly improved. Um, but it's still it's still very, very small. I think it's mostly because the the way that we drive culture right now and the way that we raise people and teach people to think in school and at work and in media um, still clings to a lot of stories that are not aligned with the story you and I are telling. And it's pretty hard to it's pretty hard to compete with 12 years of schooling and 200 movies when you start to talk to someone about what's possible. Uh, not to mention the fact that if you don't have a lot of the infrastructure you need around investment and funding and banking and, you know, uh, budgeting and all those sorts of things that would be uh, done differently, um, if there's not as much infrastructure for that, then it's just going to always nudge people in the direction of the status quo. So I do I do see it as a longer term, you know, transition. But I think that the world is certainly eager to teach us uh this lesson faster and faster. And so this year with the entire planet going to remote work, with everyone dealing with the, you know, the chaos and the complexity of a pandemic, with the Black Lives Matter movement rising in strength and in awareness, um, there's certainly a lot of signs that we're ready to, to go deeper. I'm just wondering about a topic that uh, I guess we haven't discussed enough in our organizations, even in the last few years, and that is ownership. Uh, is there any real engagement? Is there any real distributed leadership? Uh, is there any real attachment to to the outcomes and to to the direction of the organization if people have no ownership? So ownership uh, also in a formal sense, uh, having the skin in the game, uh, having part of the organization. And in some countries, we know this is dramatically complex, dramatically bureaucratic. And uh, employees are not trained, uh, have the background, the mindset to act as owners. Are we addressing this? Is this uh, happening enough? I know about steward ownership, but there are new forms of translating this uh, into the bylaws, into the incorporation of the firm to protect the purpose on one side, but also to really open up the game to a broader part or to the entire organization. Is it part of the picture for you? Yeah, I think it's an important part. And I think like so many things, it needs to be uh, pulled apart into its pieces. So ownership as a concept is a big bucket, but I feel like it's about four things mostly. One is about risk. So are you? do you have skin in the game? And how does that feel? Uh, the second part would be about kind of emotional identity and connection. So what what is mine? What represents me? How do I sort of think about the the entity versus my own identity in the world? Uh, the third is is power or control in the form of voting rights, uh, the ability to to shape what happens. And then the last would be upside and exit. So what, you know, how do I share in the gains of the creation and and what does that look like? And I believe that, you know, you can check a lot of those boxes without necessarily sharing ownership. Um, I think if you, particularly if you have a firm that you never intend to sell, the exit value is zero. So if you, if it's sort of a thing that's built to, built to continue, uh, or if it's a nonprofit, for example, that's built to not have exit value, um, and upside, I think that's, I think you can get away with 
a lot of other moves, right? Because people can have skin in the game in a different way. People can have a vote and a, and a consent right in a different way. So I think you can simulate the the benefits of ownership. But I, I agree with you that you can't get the full measure of that kind of connection and commitment without doing it, which is why we we do it. Um, so, at, you know, at the ready, we distribute equity at the end of every year. Um, and the goal is basically to, over time, dilute me into the system. And then over time after that, dilute the system into the active players versus the inactive players so that shareholders that are not active in the business are not receiving those annual grants and they're getting diluted as a result. And the shareholders that are active in the business are continuing to receive those grants, which means they're either growing or maintaining their their share of the enterprise. And so that's that's our little miniature thesis about how to do it. But I think there's a lot of cool thinking going on in the cooperative space, in the employee-owned, you know, kind of organizational space. And I've actually met quite a few companies lately where a group of people gets together right out of the gate and they start with that pattern. Um, but to your point, I mean, it's funny, you know, when you, when we talk about it this way, uh, to your point in the beginning of this of this podcast about leadership, I actually have seen that be challenging. I've seen it be challenging for startups who start with five or 10 equal partners to have a sense of where that groundwork leadership lives. Who is setting the stakes? Who is defining the boundaries of the garden? Um, and, and if that work is not clearly defined and consented to early, it can get really messy really fast. And so actually, I think that it, it, it demands a, a kind of a focus on a different piece of the puzzle, which is that leadership creation source energy. Uh, when you have 10 people with an equal stake trying to start something, how to deal with that is actually quite challenging, I think quite interesting. So yeah, I think it's important. I think that there are lots of ways to address it. But but by and large, uh, it is I'm unimpressed with the way it's handled in most organizations uh, today. It's still still coming from a place of greed and scarcity, instead of a place of abundance. Um, so I think we have we have more work to do there. So let me try to patch together these as a question, because I was having really deep reflections in the background. And uh, um, you know, the question I, th I think that we are not addressing is that all our conversations are still uh, pretty much uh, rooted in an idea of an, a society that is high, highly specialized and essentially works through markets. So if it works through markets, there is no other thesis, uh, no other human development thesis than the entrepreneurial thesis. So I, I, sometimes I fall back uh, to Wendell Berry's work, and I think uh, the listeners of this podcast maybe will be annoyed about this quote that I'm using all the time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he speaks about uh, the fact that uh, you cannot uh, uh, proxy, you cannot uh, delegate change just to organizations. You know, it also needs uh, to be a personal matter. You know, the, 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 the way we impact the world, the way we show up in the world is a personal question. It's not just a matter of how we design our organizations. We cannot delegate that to, as a design problem. It's not an organizational problem. So what I'm trying to say with that, 
so for example, you also mentioned education, you know, and of course the education system that we have now is essentially an education system that is in service of the economic system. Also, we have this education system because we have this economic system and the education system is producing players that can play inside the economic system that we have. <laughs> or at least they um, used to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, because if I think about my my kids, for example, my kids don't go to a public school. I send them to kind of a collective school where it's parent uh, run and it's very much uh, developing the whole of the kids. You know? And um, I've been confronted with this lately. It's a fairly personal matter here, but uh, my oldest kid may be plus endowed or something like that, more like a rational intelligence, you know, and uh, uh, this would make it a perfect player for the current world, you know, but uh, I think uh, going in a school like that, uh, it will be complemented and, and uh, exposed to different types of intelligence. And so I was thinking that um, maybe to really develop a new ways of organizing for the 21st century, uh, you know, one thing that came out uh, fairly strongly from our uh, research on the new foundations of performance ecosystems thinking, the white paper, is that we may need to, to look uh, to pay more attention to economies of essentials. And for example, there is this uh, awesome uh, project in London called uh, Participatory City that maybe you have been uh, in touch with. And uh, they are really focused on these economies of essential. And I think there is this amazing idea that you can achieve a new human development thesis that is significant even if you work on the economy of essentials. You don't need to work on this abstract, specialized digital economy that we are talking about. And I'm starting to think that uh, this is not just a possibility, it's a must if you really, if we really want to draw a new human development thesis, we need to look into that because that's the way where we can depart from a super specialized uh, society when the only human development thesis possible is that of entrepreneurship. And I'm not, I mean, I, mean, I started this conversation as a proponent of that, but, but I think we also need to acknowledge that uh, uh, maybe we as designers, practitioners, uh, we need to start being more interested in actually less maybe interesting, interested in consulting and maybe more interested in actually building those kind of uh, uh, um, organizations where we can be investors, we can be uh, you know, um, co-owners, uh, co we can uh, take over, uh, not, I mean, not just maybe our food or our energy, but also our education, our education of our kids, our welfare, uh, uh, much more as a, a T, I would say, T-shaped uh, uh, people, but also, you know, uh, having stakes in something that goes beyond the digitalized, specialized economy of, uh, of the 20th century, essentially. I don't know what, what you think about that. If you have experience also in working in, in such contexts, uh, what are your thoughts? So many. I mean, you could do a whole episode on that, right? That is a, that's a rich vision uh, of the future. I think the first thing I would say is I agree that individual change and, and reinvention is at the core of what's needed. But I think where I diverge is, and I and actually reconnect with you, is that it's through our social systems that we create our own identity and we modulate it. And so whether that be the school system or the work system or the family system, like we're way more influenced by the things around us than the things within us than we think. And so I actually believe that it is still systems change that needs to happen. The question is, 
from who and and where and how and in what order. So I think I do I do return to your point about essentials there and say, yeah, I mean, I I think social systems change in essentials is uh, is instrumental in in bringing about this this different future. And ideally, it's a different future where the the richness and the diversity of opportunity ways of being is wider and broader without the worst consequences. Right. And so in many cases, when people ask me, well, what, you know, we talk about the future of work a lot. And by that, we mean self-organization and, and boundaryless organizations and all that sort of stuff. But a lot, a lot of times when people come at me with a future of work question, they mean AI and robotics. They mean, you know, what happens when there's no employees in the Amazon factory and, and what I always come back to, which I think connects to your, to your theme here is there's going to be a future where there's really high leverage businesses, where there are businesses that, you know, 10 or 100 or 1000 people work at, but that affect billions of people, whether that be through machine intelligence, or whether that be through robotics, or whether that be through, you know, just internet scale, um, there's going to be a lot of high leverage stuff going on. And that means that there's going to be a lot of wealth concentration uh, in the hands of those leaders, founders, shareholders, uh, organizations which then opens up the door to conversations about things like universal basic income, which I know is a highly contentious concept and one with a lot of interesting edges and possibilities. But one of the things I think it affords is it affords the possibility for these different ways of being that you're talking about to actually come into existence where entrepreneurial specialization is not the only way to live a good life if there's a social safety net like that that's supported by this very asymmetrical, very nonlinear kind of success that's possible for the few in the future. So I actually, I look at the future and I see this really weird elaborate dance between the hyper entrepreneurs, the hyper capitalists that create immense concentration of wealth and the social systems around them that redistribute some of that wealth not all of it, but some of it in favor of a, a society where there are a lot of different ways to be and different ways to win. Uh, and I think that, you know, some of that means going back to the land and back to a simpler existence. Some of that means going more creative and artistic. Some of that means going, you know, into business spaces that we previously couldn't see before, um, you know, in an entrepreneurial way. But I, you know, if you study complexity long enough, you come to appreciate diversity, right? The the need to have lots of different mutations in a system to, to make it strong. And I think we're way too homogenous right now. Uh, well, I mean, this uh, rhymes well uh, with the uh, concept of, um, of uh, resilience, you know, because uh, um, I think we have been living through this pandemic and uh, there's been a lot of talking about how do we build a system, rebuild a system that is more resilient, less brittle. You know? And and uh, and uh, I think we have we have been talking about the economies of essential. And um, one thing that uh, also brought to me to brought uh, this to my mind is, for example, some experiences that we are seeing now in organizations similar to ours. Uh, to uh, I, I would say to look at, uh, for example, at uh, salaries uh, in a way that depends on your needs more than. Uh, uh, your social needs more than your capabilities to produce value. You know? So, for example, I can quote, uh, I can talk about uh, the experience that uh, Dark Matter Labs is bringing forth, you know, in the UK, where they have this kind of system of salaries, as I understand from, from what we had uh, uh, seen in the public, uh, that uh, the, uh, 
tries more to solve uh, you know the the problems of the people to enable them to really think to think about uh, uh, creation and entrepreneurship in a more in a freer way i would say um, but also another point may be that uh, again maybe we want to think about organizations as uh, uh, being uh, uh, re-entangled with their mm, mm, their communities and their uh, uh, landscapes. You know, for example, I was talking to someone from Google, which and I think Emanuele was with me uh, uh, without mentioning who, but uh, he was talking to me and telling me, you know, these kind of executives from the Silicon Valley, they are freaking out now because their homes are burning. You know, their homes are burning because of climate change, because of... Uh, all the challenges we are living. So really, maybe, really, again, maybe this is a call for us to look into uh, new thesis of organizing that uh, re-entangles that uh, with, uh, with uh, the community and the landscape. You know? So, so uh, I think maybe we as well, we need to focus more ourselves and also in our work uh, as consultants with organizations to, uh, to draw a new uh, health thesis for organizations that reconnects them with, uh, with their context. Uh, so, so very, very fascinating, uh, fascinating conversation. Uh, Emanuele, maybe you wanted to add something, right? Yeah, I agree with you guys. But my question, being a bit uh, on the side of the corporation, is to what extent are these concepts, uh, principles, ideas, practices uh, shared by typical CEO of a big organization? Um, and as I feel, this is not uh, there yet. What can we do to amplify this impact and bring it beyond uh, the you know 100 uh, well-known names uh, of uh, mature progressive organizations that uh, are giving us hope, but probably are not enough to 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 bring the world on a new trajectory. Yeah, this is where I think the Ready has a different take than some other people in our space, which is. Uh, better is better. And so when I work with organizations like Citibank or the Federal Reserve or Boeing, obviously, I'm not put, you know, the team is not going in there to, uh, to completely reinvent capitalism, right? These are these are public institutions, publicly traded companies with, with uh, fiduciary responsibility, their shareholders and all that sort of thing. So so there's a different ambition there than when we work with, you know, a growing organization in the mid market or the small market that is willing to do the truly radical thing. But our view is that, you know, a 5% more equitable, 5% more transparent, 5% more consent driven organization is is net net a better world, right? And and actually that the people that we touch and shape one team, one function at a time will move and and spread uh, the ideas that they pick up into different contexts and often into contexts where they can do them more fully. And so I don't think that we have to give up on the values of our principles here uh, or you know the ideals uh, of our principles here in order to engage with the real world, quote unquote. I think we just have to go in with the attitude of moving in the direction of our principles is good. And and for those that are ready to move further and faster, fantastic. And for those that are not, how far are you willing to move? And that's why we always start with the question of what's adjacent possible for you. You know, if you're a CEO with a traditional mindset, what's what is a move you can make? Because what I've found is that in the last five years, more than the previous five, I'll get on the phone with the CEO of a major corporation expecting that I need to have my armor on and that I need to be ready to argue and make a case and explain and, and, and challenge them. And they're already there. 
as a person, as a human being, they're already there. There's a spirituality and an awareness and a, and a desire for more meaning at work that permeates even the people that I talk to at the highest levels. Not all of them. Of course, there are still dyed-in-the-wool asshole capitalists out there. But a lot of people you would not expect have a secret whisper in their heart about, I wish we could do things differently. And all we have to do is then just say, well, how do we feed that in a way that's still safe for you? How do we feed that in a way that still, you know, allows you to keep your job and just move in the direction? Because, I, you know, I, some people I know believe that we have to burn it down in order to uh, reveal the new and we can only build it from the ashes. But I've always been a believer that we can kind of do both at the same time that, you know, there are people ready to burn it down. And I love those people and I'm one of them. And there are people that are ready to, to move us forward. And I, I think that's a, a critical component as well. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my belief about this is, is every little bit helps. And for those that are willing to be brave, uh, that's all the better. Yeah. I mean, also to respond, uh, to, to comment on, uh, your points, but, you know, you brought your points. I, I think one thing that we seem to, uh, under, uh, uh, always under our radar, uh, I think uh, it's that we should not just talk to corporations. We also need to talk to the new constituents. Because uh, the, the point is that probably if markets are going to change, in part now are going to change because of the risk landscape is changed. So the, the, the World Economic Forum just released their risk report and it's a it's, you know, dramatic picture. And so, you know, last week also, I think two days ago, I was with Emmanuel talking with a large corporation and uh, they said, you know, the pandemic uh, pushed us to work on our purpose. You know, uh, so I think the risk landscape change are going to change corporations for sure. And but on the other hand, I think we need to also consider that maybe there are new constituents that may be more interested in uh, even in working with these new economies of essential that we'll be talking about, like cooperatives that you mentioned or, uh, you know, ways to self-organize markets uh, in a way that are ex detached from the, you know, the the the. A transactional commodity-based market that we live. Uh, so, for example, I don't know, organizing farmers directly with uh, customers that want to invest, you know, in, in creating new economic activities around farming. I think uh, these are probably the spaces where we need to also look at practitioners of platform thinking or organizational development thinkers. Uh, so, so, so this is probably a point that we need to also keep in mind. But as, as we move into the last bits of this conversation, because it's already, it's, it, it flew already, but uh, uh, now it's almost 50 minutes we are talking. Uh, I wanted to ask you one key, uh, couple of key points that you really believe uh, need to be on the uh, table of those like us Uh, doing design, organizational development, and business model innovation. What are two, you know, one or two most important things that I think you think we need to keep in mind? I mean, in this moment, I'm thinking of two things. I'm not sure if these are the most important, but on, on the top of my mind would be, number one, if you're among us, if you're a listener to this show, if you're, if you're in a system where you have the, the community and the consent to do interesting things, I think it's really important that we that we try quite radical things. I think it's important that we almost break it uh, in order to understand and learn what's possible because other people won't. And so if you're thinking about changing your compensation system or your performance review system or your structure or your, you know, whatever it is, your roles, um, 
I like the idea of playing dangerously with uh, with going right to the edge of consent because we learn more and it's okay to do two or three different attempts uh, in a system where the community is saying, yeah, let's go, like, let's make a mess to learn and to create stories and to create motivation for others. So I, a little bit of my battle cry is to, is to be more brave and to be more radical um, even if it's wrong, as long as you have the support of the system and frankly, the privilege to make mistakes, you know, not all of us do, but some of us have businesses that are doing well enough or, or communities that are well to do enough that we can take some risks. And I think it's, it's beholden on us to do that, to try, try the things that have never been tried before or never been tried before in the way that we want to try them. So that's one thought. And then the second thought is connected to that is just, um, we need to share more. I mean, I, I really do feel that uh, sharing what we're doing, how we work, how we operate, what we're learning and the underbelly of that, the hard parts, what isn't working, where we're vulnerable, where we're insecure, where we're anxious um, as a community is is pretty critical. I know uh, externally to the market and to the to the sort of sales channel of the world, we're often accused of painting this very rosy picture and this very dreamlike picture of the future. And I think at least within our own community, we need to do a better job of sharing exactly what we're doing and exactly what it feels like and exactly what we're unsure about. Um, so I would love to come back and do a second episode, maybe with Rodney, where we share how we're working inside our systems in great detail with great vulnerability uh, because if we all did more of that, we could move and learn faster. Well, definitely. I mean, uh, would be great. Uh, would be really great. Um, and at the end of the day, I think we started from uh, uh, friction, and then we ended up on a, a very much more shared uh, note. You know, and and so at the end of the day, likely we we agree that we need to, as you said, you know, we need to be more, we need to be more brave, you know, in exploring the possibilities uh, that we have with, with organizing. So it was a wonderful conversation. One point before we close, uh, where can our listeners engage uh, the most with your work and what, what are your suggestions? Sure. So uh, on the web, we are theready.com and bravenewwork.com. On Twitter, we're at the ready and at Aaron Dignan. And those are the places that we spend the most time. So I would say, yeah, find us there. That's where we started this conversation. Uh, and I hope that we, you know, I hope we see a few more pop up as a result of this. Definitely. And uh, of course, our listeners should also find a moment to, to catch up with your book. You know, that now is uh, four years old, something like that. Yeah, the book is uh, two years and change, two and a half years old. And the podcast by the same name, Brave New Work, uh, is also out. And that comes out every week. So that has a little bit more freshness to it. Right. My idea of time sometimes stretches a little bit. Uh, so <laughs> so thanks, uh, thanks so much. It was an amazing conversation and really looking forward to have another one. And Emanuela, do you want to add something else? No, I'm very happy to having had this conversation. So I, I look forward to staying in touch and to sharing more on these topics. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you again. And uh, our listeners, we'll catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for our latest news and updates. 
There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, or connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform and ecosystem strategies in these turbulent times. We also want to thank Valta Mobilia Leo Sound for the ad hoc music. Thank you.